So tonight is our third part of this study that I've called Loitering in Luke. We're just hanging out in the Gospel of Luke uh, and observing some things. And what we're going to do is finish uh, the study we started last Wednesday night. And I also sent out a supplement, but I interspersed that supplement uh, on the PowerPoint with some of the existing slides that we didn't finish. Uh, so you're going to have to kind of look at both uh, last week's handout and the supplement that I sent out yesterday. So as we get started tonight, we were talking a little bit about a theory by Bishop John Shelby Spong. He is deceased, but he was an Episcopalian uh, scholar and priest, and he began making some observations about the Gospel of Luke and the corresponding uh, narrative of Luke to the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, at Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we started that a little bit by looking at chapters one and two of Luke last week, and we looked at Elizabeth and Zechariah, talked a little bit about Abraham and Sarah. We talked a little bit about some of the parallels that we find uh, between the book of Genesis and the first couple of chapters of Luke. So before I move ahead into um, the book of Exodus tonight and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as part of this parallel, I wanted to introduce you uh, to this idea that this story of Luke is told in the order or the sequence of the Torah. And we ask the question, why? And it's possible that Luke is trying to supplement the story that most that were meeting in the synagogue would have been familiar with. And to get to the heart of that, I want to talk to you just for a moment about the Jewish lectionary. So we who have been a part of Protestant evangelical Christianity for a number of years are not as familiar with lectionaries as uh, the Catholic Church, as uh, some of the more liturg liturgical Protestant churches. Uh, but there is also a Jewish lectionary that kind of sets a course over the year so that each week at synagogue, there are certain things that are read in the in public. And if you were interested in this, I'm going to show you a picture of what it looks like here. Um, they, it is online nowadays. You can go to the JewishVirtualLibrary.org and look up what the uh, weekly Torah reading is. While we might think of that as a more recent development, Really, the Jewish lectionary has existed for over 2,000 years. In other words, there was a, a way of looking at the entirety of the Torah so that by the end of each year, the people who have come to synagogue would have read and heard the stories of the Torah each year. So this is primarily due possibly because when they went into captivity uh, to Babylon, they almost lost their identity. And when they came back into their homeland, Judaism began to become more formalized so that the next generation would not lose the stories that 
shaped and formed mm-hmm. uh, uh, them as they came out of Egypt and found their own homeland. So each year, the Torah would be read from start to finish. And the way that they would do it is um, section it up into weekly readings. And the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were well aware of the Jewish lectionary and probably had been uh, uh, exposed to the Jewish uh, lectionary on a weekly basis. And it is possible that Luke is telling the reader a more fuller story of how the Torah is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Luke is not interested as much in a chronological order of events as he is trying to put it in a particular sequence that corresponds to the stories they already had heard. So if you were to look up the Jewish lectionary uh, today online, you would find here that there is the 52 weeks of the year that's listed out, and the date uh, usually is corresponding to a Jewish uh, vocabulary, the top one you're most familiar with, starting in September, Rosh Hashanah being the new year. But here's what I want you to notice. Each week, they would read a portion of the Torah. In the case of uh, Rosh Hashanah, beginning in September, they would read Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 34, and then they would read a portion from the end of the Torah, or at least toward the end of the Torah as well. Here, in this case, it's Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6. They would also read uh, a portion from the prophets as well. So there were three readings as part of the Jewish lectionary. And the uh, first reading would be Torah. The second one would be a supplemental element of the Torah. And the third one would be from the prophets. And you could go through the entire year through this. And you would find different words. And you'd have to look them up to see what they mean. I'm sure you recognize this one here. Yom Kippur as being the Day of Atonement. But each of these Hebrew uh, words represents something and means something in relationship to the story that is found in the Torah. And so if you find that interesting, you can find this online. This particular one is for the civil year 2022 through 2023. So it's not January through December. The new year begins in September and goes until the following August. So uh, with that in mind, I want to go back to this slide for a second. This is probably part of uh, what is available to Luke as he's beginning to write this particular gospel account. So as we move forward in that, what we'll find is that there there was some supplemental writings and research uh, done on this particular topic. Now, this is, I'm ashamed to say this, I was never taught this or exposed to this information in through all my years of seminary. But it is interesting that this author, M.D. Golder, wrote a book called The Evangelist Calendar. And what he's referring to by evangelist is he's referring to Luke and his gospel account being an 
uh, evangelistic effort to tell the story of Jesus. So I looked this book up, and you'll find this interesting. Here's a screenshot of the evangelist calendar. You can buy this book on Kindle for $9.99, but if you want a hardcover from Amazon, it's only $3,000. So, <laughs> so I... Uh, I would say that if you're interested in this, go the Kindle route. <laughs> but anyways, it's interesting here that, um, as this title says, a lectionary explanation of the development of scripture. And that's what uh, John Shelby Spong was trying to say as he noticed the parallels that were happening between the Gospel of Luke and the order of the Torah. So, the other reason the lectionary became important was, as you might know, by the time you get to the New Testament, the language uh, that the people were beginning to speak as part of the common vernacular was Aramaic. Uh, it was not Hebrew. And so as generations came along, uh, biblical Hebrew, as in our Old Testament, uh, people were beginning to lose their ability to understand the language. So the Old Testament uh, was translated into Aramaic, and a, a term that is used for that, if you ever run across this term, Targum, uh, Targum is the ancient Aramaic paraphrase uh, of the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's not a translation per se, how many of you are familiar with uh, the Living Bible? Remember back in 1971, um, Ken Taylor produced um, the Living Bible to make it more understandable uh, to the average reader. It's not a translation, at least initially when it uh, came out in 1971. It was a paraphrase. It was one man's uh, attempt to make the Bible accessible to the average reader. It has since gone through a translation effort, and um, it, 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 it came out as the New Living Bible, and I don't know the exact copyright date on that, but that was more of an effort of translation than a paraphrase. But the Targum was this effort to make the Old Testament available to a people that were losing their ability in Hebrew after so many years of being um, under foreign regimes uh, and making it accessible to uh, the common person. And it is more than likely the language that was used, or at least the paraphrase that was used in the synagogue as the scriptures were read. Um, it's most likely Jesus spoke Aramaic, even though the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, those who are a part of Judaism in the first century uh, uh, were more familiar with Aramaic. So this author, Golder, in his, his book, shows that Luke's gospel, at least in its original form, were, was probably a summary of the weekly homilies that were done in the synagogue. Now, it was highly unlikely, even though scholars think that Luke might have had access to Matthew and Mark's uh, account, it is highly unlikely that Luke had any other writings because the writings of the New Testament were written much later 
um, than uh, during the days of Jesus and the formation of the early church. So in other words, what text or what resources did they use in those beginning days in the synagogue? It's most likely they were using the Jewish lectionary and they did the weekly Torah readings uh, from Aramaic. And this paraphrase was used and then it was connected to the story of Jesus as well. So that's an aside, but I think it helps us to understand why Luke's gospel looks the way that it does. So I think we are familiar with the same type of setup. Now, if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral or if you grew up Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church each Sunday uses a lectionary approach to the Mass. And there were, are three readings in the Mass, one from the Hebrew Bible, one from the New Testament writings, and one from the Gospel account. So if you ever go to a Roman Catholic funeral, they'll have these same three readings. Uh, the uh, participants are allowed to stay seated when uh, the Hebrew scripture is read and the New Testament writing is read. But when the gospel account is read, uh, all the people are required to stand up and uh, form the sign of the cross. OK, uh, what the priest will do then is he will deliver a homily. It's usually not very long. Uh, within Protestant evangelicalism, the average sermon is every anywhere from 25 minutes to 40 minutes. So others go longer. But um, a priest will develop usually about a 15 at most minute homily before um, the Eucharist is partaken. So the priest will then try to, in his own words, summarize uh, uh, one or more of those readings that came before. And um, that's not as easy as it sounds, because if you look at some of the readings that are selected as part of the lectionary, it's hard to see if there, where there is a connection between them. Sometimes they seem as though they're very isolated and stand on their own. But uh, these connections, if there are any, and, and there's Protestant churches that do this as well. So um, liturgical churches um, like Presbyterianism, Methodism, and uh, Lutheranism sometimes, will the pastors will use lectionaries as the guide to what they're going to be preaching on from week to week. Uh, knowing some other pastors that do lectionary-type preaching uh, one of the frustrations that they do have is trying to make these three readings connect with each other. And so a lot of times what is usually done by a pastor is a selection of just one of those readings, and that's what they will talk about. Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. That's what I grew up with. Okay. So, you know, some pastors try to make all three readings connect, but that's a really monumental task. So um, they'll choose one, and that's usually what they'll expound upon. Why am I bringing that in? I think that has a direct connection to the idea of the Jewish lectionary. And as we move ahead tonight, just keep this in mind. 
the early church did not have their own writings for decades. So Jesus died 33 AD, and uh, the earliest of the writings, uh, which is probably the book of Galatians by Paul, is about 45 to 50 AD. So you're talking well over 20 some years before some of these manuscripts start to emerge as part of the early church. But what they did have was the Hebrew Bible. And so um, they looked into it on a regular basis and they tried to make the Hebrew story connect to the movement of God within this new movement called the church. Um, There's a percentage there. You can see 77% of your Bible is from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Only 23% of your Bible is New Testament material. So uh, what you find is that uh, this story that is unfolding in the Torah, in the prophets, and in the writings of the Old Testament is something that they drew upon heavily. So I think I've tried to help you see probably what the early church did in those early days as they met in the synagogues before Paul established some of the local house churches on some of his missionary journeys. But let me stop and see if you have any questions or thoughts or insights on that. So who who decided the material in the lectionary? Well, that would be part of the role of the scribes um, that not only um, that not only copied manuscripts, but I'm I'm sure that not only the the priesthood, but the the scribes uh, they they worked and collaborated together on this as it it evolved. I don't think it's like a book where, like yourself, where you're trying to put a single volume in the book you're writing together. I think it is something that evolved over time and it kept um, it, it kept in motion until it became part of the, um, the regiment of the weekly uh, synagogue meetings. And of course, as things developed, uh, and as more and more uh, ability to uh, collaborate with um, uh, other synagogues and the ability to communicate, I'm sure there was uh, those type of projects, I guess, to try to sync up so that uh, just like in church today, supposedly in Protestant Christianity, any any lectionary church, you would be able to go in on a Sunday and hear the same three readings, whether it was in a Lutheran, Methodist, or Presbyterian, or other type of church, uh, because uh, it, it's called the Revised Common <laughs> Lectionary, where it becomes kind of a one standard, uh, so that people that are even in their travels, they can stop into any church and they know what their home church back home is covering that Sunday. Does that make, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's yeah. that's kind of, uh, I think what's happened in Hebrew uh, uh, version with their lectionary over a course of years. So, all right. It's kind of so, like 
when I went to my dad's church in Akron, which was Lutheran, and then I grew up in a Lutheran church, and they were very similar. Mm-hmm. They always read uh, the gospel, and you always had to stand up. But the rest of them, we sat down. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the Hebrew so much, but I remember they had two readings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just telling you, um, in the Roman Catholic uh, lectionary, you, oh, you yeah. had an Old Testament reading, uh, an mm-hmm. epistle reading, and a gospel reading. Yeah, that's what they had, epistle and gospel. Okay, very good. So here's how this relates to the book of Luke. So it is entirely possible that Luke is trying to use the order that the synagogues used to tell the story of Jesus. And I think what we're going to see now, so you can go, uh, this is from last week's handout. Uh, You can see some parallels to the book of Exodus. So the early part of Luke has a connection to, um, uh, to the book of Genesis. Now you come to the book of Exodus and you begin to see some things. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Luke chapter uh, three. Okay. So in Luke chapter three, after you have the birth narrative of Jesus and you have the, um, you have the story of John the Baptist here, who is said to be one that comes in the spirit of who? Elijah, to prepare the way of the Lord. You get a little bit of backstory about John the Baptist. And then after we're told about um, him preparing the people for the coming of Jesus, he's arrested. And Uh, We're told down in verse 19 that after he, like Elijah and other Old Testament prophets, had confronted Herod, the Tetrarch, um, for taking his brother's wife, uh, he is locked up in prison. And then that ends. That story just ends right there. And all of a sudden, you have the baptism and genealogy of Jesus dropped into the narrative. Now, this seems to be a strange place for this. In the Gospel of Matthew, it begins with the genealogy. Luke waits until the third chapter before it shows up. But if you follow the story of Exodus, it makes more sense. So look at verse 21. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. So the idea of the heavens opening up has a similar um, sound to the sea opening up that the people of God move through the waters and they come out the other side and it is a new beginning. 
for their life out of Egypt. Now, you drop in this, uh, this genealogy here, and Luke's genealogy takes you all the way back to Adam, not to Abraham, which is interesting. So there's a lot of names that none of us can pronounce in this genealogy, but it's interesting that here this genealogy is dropped into this place here rather than um, being at the beginning, like in Matthew. Matthew is wanting you to know right out of the gate that Jesus is connected to David and to Abraham. Here, this is uh, showing us he is connected to the entire human race. So where does he go from there? So then Luke, in chapter 4, goes to the temptation account. Where's the temptation? In the wilderness. Okay, think about Exodus. Think about them coming through. It is, um, it is a stop at Mount Sinai where they're given the law. They're given the instructions for the tabernacle. But then the story goes on and talks about their journey in the wilderness. Now, notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. Okay, the, What were the people to do in the as they were coming out of Egypt? They were to follow the cloud and the pillar of fire as it leads them. And it says here, he is tempted by the uh, devil for 40 days. The word, the, uh, the number 40 is important here. How long did the nation of Israel wander in the wilderness? Almost 40 years. So there is these parallels that are going on here that are very intentional. This isn't just random, and that's why some of the stuff in Luke is placed differently than you'll find it in Mark and in Matthew. So after these three temptations, he goes to Nazareth. Now, in Nazareth, now let's read this here um, because I think it is an example of the Jewish lectionary I was telling you about. So it says in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That sounds to me like it was already pre-planned, okay? Here's the passage that was chosen for this Sunday. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this comes out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And I think it was last week I mentioned the day of vengeance is dropped. Jesus uh, does not read that portion out of Isaiah. He rolls up the scroll, verse 20. He hands it back to the attendant. And then he makes this very profound statement. 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's making a connection that what was anticipated all the way back in Isaiah, of course, Isaiah is famous for the servant songs that are there, the suffering servant. He is the one that fulfills that expectation. So take a look here on the screen. After the temptation account, Luke is telling the story of Jesus. And notice what happens, though. It, it is placed in a position here right after the temptation account, rather than, as you can see here, this same account is much later in Mark and in Matthew. In Matthew, this story doesn't show up until the 13th chapter. So Luke seems to be putting this side by side here for a reason. And probably what he's doing, if we can try to make some sense of it, is compare the story of Jesus to the story in Exodus. So Jesus, at his baptism, uh, is validated by God. Moses, uh, it's not so much a baptism, but in the wilderness at the burning bush, he's validated. So th these uh, stories seem to be combined a little bit to, to bring a parallel to Moses. Like Moses, Jesus is uh, going to be scorned. So the story of Moses is his leadership is rejected. And, um, and what we find is here, Luke, it will show us that once Jesus <clears throat> uh, has has read this scripture, what he does is he does a little bit of targum, okay? He paraphrases a little bit here to show the relevance of the passage that he just read. And here's what he says in verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you do you did in Capernaum. Well, there's already a track record here of the miracles the other gospel accounts tell us that he did in Capernaum. But this is right after his temptation account. He hasn't done anything yet. Do you see? He's he's placed this intentionally here because in Capernaum, uh, that will become kind of Jesus' earthly headquarters for um, for most of his Galilean ministry. And it's there he did the bulk of his miracles. Now he really gets himself into trouble. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many uh, widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Connects it back to the days of Elijah again. When the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syria. So now Jesus introduces the story in such a way by using Old Testament examples that God's working was not just meant for Israel alone, it was meant for the entire world. Now notice how his hometown responds to him. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up 
and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Well, what is happening here is Jesus, who, especially in the Gospel of Mark, there's all kinds of parallels between Moses and Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses. Um, and what we find here is even though he's the new Moses with a uh, ongoing story of what God is doing, his situation is no better than the old Moses who was rejected by the people when uh, they they wanted to go back to Egypt. Uh, while they're wandering in the wilderness, uh, they remembered the onions, the leeks, and the garlic, and the other things that they had while they were in Egypt. And ironically, they forget the slavery and hard labor that they had there. So Luke is trying to show that Jesus has the same experience as Moses did with his own people. Okay, so let me stop there and see if he has some thoughts about this slide. Any comments? Then we will go to Leviticus. Okay, so now where is Luke going to go? So now we find the calling of the disciples in chapter 5, and then we are introduced to the first miracle in Luke's account. Um, what we find here is um, in verse 12, there's the healing of uh, a man with leprosy. And what we find is this individual uh, begs Jesus for healing, and Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man, and he says to the man, I am willing, be clean, be clean, not be healed, be clean. Why? Well, leprosy was an illness that made a person unclean and therefore unacceptable in the community. And that's why, why they were isolated. Okay. So now what we find is uh, in this account, I think he's starting to connect to the book of Leviticus, which is all about clean and unclean. Okay, so all these commands that are in Leviticus are part of the holiness code, but it's really about cleanliness. There's a lot of things about ceremonial cleanliness. I'm not talking about taking a shower. Um, it's the idea of these are the people that are allowed to worship God. And uh, it goes, it ranges from anyone who's exposed to someone who has died to a woman that is having her period, uh, to uh, these type of, excuse me, individuals that would make, at least in the Jewish mind, a person unclean. That is, if you touched a leper, if you touched a dead person, if you touched um, a, a woman while she's in the middle of her menstrual cycle, it makes you ceremonially unclean and not fit to worship until a time of uh, cleansing takes place. So we're getting just at the start here of probably the Leviticus section of Luke. 
Now it goes on here, and you'll find that Jesus will select his uh, his twelve disciples. That's in chapter six, and um, after he chooses them, what's interesting here is you have a shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount. So go over to Luke chapter six. This occurs later than when we find Matthew giving us a much fuller account of the Sermon on the Mount than we have here in Luke. Down in verse 17, it tells us that after he selects his 12 disciples who are named in uh, verses 12 through 16, he says he went down with them and stood on a level place. So you have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. But it's interesting here that what's introduced, if you look at verse 17, a large crowd of his disciples were there, and it's not just people from Judea and Jerusalem, but also Tyre and Sidon. So what you have here is an expanding to a more foreign territory. The boundaries are being broadened, broadened to include both Jews and Gentiles. And so it's to this group of people you have here not just the Beatitudes, but a series of woes. So what you have is a shortened version. There's only four Beatitudes, beginning in verse 20, in Luke's account, but you have eight of them in the Matthew account. Um, and then in verse 24, down through verse 26, you have four woes, W-O-E. So you have four Beatitudes and you have four woes in contrast to Matthew's account, which is the beginning of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven of Matthew. So what is Luke doing? So again, these scholars are looking and they're going, maybe this is designed to intentionally carry on the story that would have been heard through the readings in the synagogue. And in particular, um, Leviticus 19.18, um, way, way back in the Torah, 1918, it says here, as it talks about all these commands and stuff, it says here, um, did I get there? Okay, verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there is the great commandment that goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And who is to be the focus of this great commandment? Don't hold a, gr a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So what you have is out of the Torah, it seems as though a mentality is, well, my neighbor is my kin. It's those individuals that are part of my, uh, my kinship. We're all Jewish. But Jesus will expand the idea of love, now go back to Luke, right after the four Beatitudes and the four woes, what's the next thing? 
Verse 27, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. He's expanding the idea of this commandment in Leviticus 19.18. It includes others, not just your own kin. So what these scholars are observing is Luke is organizing these stories in such a way to show that Jesus is calling his people to a higher standard, to a way of, of love that not, is not just people that are part of your own group, but to others as well. And if you, uh, you can see that developing beginning in verse 27, all the way down through verse 20, 36, where he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so there is a portrayal of Jesus of, of building upon the Torah, but calling the people to a higher level of Torah observance. Okay, let me stop there. Does that make sense? Do you have some questions? Why are the Beatitudes so different in Matthew? I mean, it says, you know, blessed are the mourned, shall they be comforted. But yet Luke is like, whoa. Yeah. That's because um, I think one of the things that Luke is doing is the woe is, is also kin to the curses that you find in the Torah. If you would do this, you will be blessed. Mm -hmm. If you do this, you will be cursed. Okay. That's not Matthew's objective, but I think that's what Luke is trying to get across here. I think he's trying to tie us back to the, the Torah. Uh, okay. by the way he tells the story. So Luke intentionally, it's not that Jesus didn't say the other four Beatitudes. He intentionally just doesn't record those. Okay. Okay. Because okay. he has a different purpose. Okay. Good question. All right. So let's move ahead. So let's think a bit about the next book in the Torah, the book of Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Now, there are hints here as well. Um, when you think about the beginning of the book of Numbers, I want you to see how it begins. So I'm going to turn back to the book of Numbers for a moment, and I'm going to turn to chapter five of the book of Numbers. So you have a lot of these type of things that are in the book of Leviticus, but the book of Numbers really begins to, um, to settle in on this idea of what is clean and what is unclean. Take a look at verse one of chapter five of Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp Anyone who has an infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body, send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent them outside the camp 
and they did just as the Lord instructed Moses. So you have this same idea of clean and unclean. Now, there's some other things that occur, uh, some tests for an unfaithful wife, the dedication of the offerings to the tabernacle. But when you get then to Numbers chapter 9, you come back to this idea, again, of clean and unclean. If you come down uh, to verse 6 of Numbers 9, it says, but some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, we have become unclean because of a dead body, but why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses answered them, wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. So there's this high, high level of distinction between clean and unclean in the book of Numbers. Okay, now back to Luke, okay? In the book of Luke, the next section of it begins to uh, talk about things that would have made Jesus um, unclean. So what you have is uh, this idea of, I just told you about, healing the man with leprosy. But if you go a little bit farther into the gospel of Luke, if you come to chapter eight, and we touched upon this story just very slightly this past Sunday about this man who was demon possessed uh, in the land of the Gerasenes. If you look at verse 26, uh, they they uh, the disciples sailed to this area that's called the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities of the Roman Empire that's found in the region of Galilee. When Jesus gets there, uh, he meets up with this demon-possessed man from the town who has been placed outside the camp, okay? He is one, uh, we're told here, for a long time this man had not worn clothes, he's naked, or lived in a house, he's homeless, but he lived in where? The tombs. He lived among the dead. He is an individual that camped out in the cemetery, which made him unclean. And then it says when he saw Jesus, he cries out and he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? No one else wants to be around me. They've already, um, they have already, you know, exiled him. They've already um shunned him and put him outside the camp and they wanted to make sure that he wouldn't come back uh because it says here in verse 26 when he saw Jesus he cried out fell at his feet said what do you want uh with me Jesus son of uh most high god i beg you don't torture me well, so that's something that he's been used to i think uh there were those that tried to stone him and kill him and then it says, for Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. And then it, there's kind of a parenthesis here that gives some more explanation. It says, many times this evil spirit seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon 
into solitary places. So he was shackled. He was he was he was like the scapegoat that was taken out into the wilderness and released and um and they wanted to make sure that he did not come back. Now Jesus being out there with this individual um would have been considered unclean. Um then he asks his name and Jesus exercises this demon and notice uh, what he does. Uh, there's this verse 32, a large herd of pigs that was feeding on the hillside. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. What is an unclean animal? Pigs in Judaism. Okay. So, uh, and this must have been a pig uh, a ranch or farm because it says when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. So this obviously was not considered a, a clean environment. And that's why this individual was shunned and placed into this area. Okay. But then Notice where Luke takes the story in verse 40. When Jesus returns, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So she's been isolated and segregated from the community for 12 years. No one could heal her. She comes up behind Jesus, touches his cloak, and he she is healed. So this is kind of a miracle within a miracle, but this is an unclean woman that has touched Jesus. The story goes on. After he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you, verse 48. He continues on to the house of Jairus. By the time he gets there, he is told that uh, Jairus's daughter is dead. She's already died. Verse 50 says, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people are mourning because they began the uh, uh, the process of grief. Uh, and he says, she's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed at him. But notice what happens in verse 54. He took her by the hand. That made him unclean. You see, all of these things are related. The leprosy, the demon-possessed man, the woman with the issue of blood, the daughter who's dead, he touches her. All of these things would have made him unclean. But I think what Luke is doing is he is showing that Jesus is, is healing these people. Rather than him becoming unclean, he is making them clean or is, uh, or is healing them. So there are these parallels that are going on that 
we don't pick up on when we just read these stories in isolation. But when you begin to put them side by side, you go, these, boy, these, a lot of these things are very, very similar. Okay, let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts. Is there any significance between the 12 there? The girl was about 12 years old and the woman had been uh, bleeding for 12 years. I do think there's a connection. Uh, we touched upon just a few chapters earlier, how many disciples are chosen? 12. Oh, 12, yeah. The girl is 12. The woman is bleeding 12. This is all very vaguely connected to the 12 tribes, I think. And I think what is happening is Jesus is showing that this is the ongoing story of the uh, of Israel. It's where it was meant to go all along. Um, Why do you think that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm changing the subject. So no, go ahead. Go ahead. That's right. We're in no hurry. We're lo loitering. Okay. <laughs> We're loitering. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering um, when he says uh, every her parents are amazed, but he said, "Tell no one what's happened." Do you think that was because it was unclean, or because he just wasn't ready to? share or another people he says go tell everyone that yeah that's a great question um there is this dynamic more so in the gospel of mark than in the gospel of luke that is often called the messianic secret that jesus doesn't want um the uh what his disciples know to become a barrier to some of the miracle workings that he's intending to do. So in Luke's account here, it's interesting that um, in chapter nine, verse 51, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He knows it's his final journey into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. And I think in Luke, what is it, the point of it is he's trying to keep this low-key so that he is able to carry out what he wanted to accomplish on that journey to Jerusalem along the way. That's one of the things that I talked about in our Sunday morning series. If you were to go to uh, our website and look up the message, Every Mile Matters, um, you'll find that there were some specific things that Jesus wanted to do on his way into Jerusalem uh, this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. He finally goes into the city and that begins the Passion Week. So I think in Luke, it is this idea there are things that he needed to do before uh, he comes to the last week of his life. And so he tells his disciples and tells these parents, don't say anything, keep it, you know, to yourself. Well, the people outside know, I mean, all they, you know, Eventually, that word gets out because here is a, a girl that died that is now outside playing the next day or whatever. So, um, but in Mark, Mark has this sub theme of the messianic secret. And it's this idea that many times Jesus told his disciples not to tell others that he was the Messiah because it would get in the way, I think of what he wanted to do in his earthly ministry. And that is to show the wide range of God's ongoing mercy 
especially revealed in the miracles that he performs. So I think that's part of it. Other thoughts? All right, so we're not done with numbers quite yet. So in numbers, when you move to chapters 13 through 15, what you have is Moses sending out 12 men to spy out the land of Canaan so that they knew what they were getting into as they go in and as they begin to settle into the promised land. All right, take a look at chapter 9 of Luke, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. There's that parallel. Moses sent out twelve men. Jesus sends out twelve men. Um, it's interesting, just a side note, that both Joshua, who leads the, the group of twelve to spy out the land is the same name as Jesus. Joshua and Jesus, one's a Greek name or an Aramaic name, the other is a Hebrew name. So it seems as though this parallel is continuing here. Uh, Joshua is faithful in going to spy out the land. Jesus is faithful in sending his people out going from village to village, verse 6 of uh, Luke 9 says, so they set out and they went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So they have this delegated authority to carry on Jesus' earthly ministry. So we're not done yet. So in the book of Deuteronomy, now 40 years has passed, you have the second giving of the law, and that's what it means, namas is law, deutero, meaning the second or uh, uh, twice giving of the law. You have the parallels as well. Now, you remember that Moses was not allowed to go in to the land, that he would die outside the land. Um You'll also be reminded that one of the reasons that they wander in the wilderness for almost 40 years is because when the 12 come back, uh, only Joshua and uh, Caleb give a favorable report to go on into the land. The other 10 said, no, they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful. Um, and so the the people follow the lead of the the 10 rather than the two. And so they're going to wander in the wilderness, and that generation will die out. Moses comes to the edge of the promised land, but he is not allowed to go in. So if you have a uh, your Bible, go over to Deuteronomy, and if you come to Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is how the book of Deuteronomy is introduced. Let me find it here. Hold on a second. <clears throat> it says here, um, these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert. So he is going to begin uh, to prepare the people to go in. 
And then as you move down, he appoints leaders, uh, tribal officials, and then finally the spies are sent out. So that is part of the same story that's found in Numbers. In verse 19, uh, it tells us in Numbers 1 that they are sent out. Uh, they are to go up and take possession of the land. And, and the report that comes back is that it's a good land that God is giving us. But verse 26 introduces, uh, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And so then they will have to wander off in the wilderness. That's chapter two of Deuteronomy, uh, the recounting of that wandering in the wilderness. Then you are told about the division of the land and all of these um, the commandments uh, are repeated. So that in chapter five, you have the Decalogue, you have the giving of the Ten Commandments that are given again. And as you keep going through, you have another account in chapter 8 of the golden calf. In chapter 14, you have uh, clean and unclean food. You have all the this idea of clean and unclean again. And then by the time you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, what you have is the death of Moses. And in the death of Moses... What we find is that he is an individual that is buried uh, in Moab. Take a look at verse 5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there at, uh, in Moab, as the Lord had said. And he, bar and he buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. And so he was 120 years old and so forth. Um but he's not allowed to go into the land. And now it will take Joshua, the next book of the Old Testament, to be strong and courageous and to go into the land and settle the land. Okay, back, back to Luke. So in chapter 10, after you are, have been told about the feeding of the 5,000 and the transfiguration, and again, there's other things that are interspersed here. You come to chapter 10, and it says, after these different things that had, had occurred, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send you out workers into the harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. And when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And then it talks about what happens if some of these people uh, reject you. Well, it says in verse 11, shake off the dust of from your feet, wipe them off and move on, basically. But what's interesting here is in verse 12, I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom than for them. And then you have this woe that comes upon them 
um, for they rejected the miracles. And this is fascinating. It says in verse 13, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, there's those two places repeated, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. So we'll talk about this this week, this Sunday morning. I think what he's alluding to is that the judgment is when the Romans come in and destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem. But notice again, the um, the people that uh, Jesus is sending out are his representatives. Just a quick side note here. Here's one of the cases where you have um, in verse one, it says 72, but you should have a footnote there that says some manuscripts say 70. There's where manuscripts disagree on what the number is to be. So what is, what's happening according to the theory of uh, Spong and, and a couple other scholars is it's giving to us parallels that are found in the Torah. And these scholars think that what Luke is doing is taking some of the homilies in the synagogue, building upon them to continue the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of the nation of Israel. So here on this slide here, uh, I say in Deuteronomy, Moses sent messengers into an alien nation, bearing words of peace and asking some of these people uh, to sell his emissaries food and water. You'll find that in chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And uh, because they refused, um, they are destroyed uh, as part of war. And what is happening here is there's this subtle allusion to the people that are rejecting the emissaries of Jesus, his disciples, 70 or 72 of them. And if they are rejected, uh, their judgment is coming upon them. So, Again, this is not something you pick up easily, um, It's but it's just fascinating how Luke builds upon the stories that would have been told in the synagogue. So here's how I'd like to summarize as we close tonight. The Gospels are not really biographies like we think about them here in the West. That's telling a complete story from beginning to end. Rather, they are uh, different things that are used to convey a particular message to a particular audience. So this is kind of a combination of both preaching and storytelling that is trying to carry on um, the story of Israel, first and foremost, and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. So I do want to read this as I finish up, and then we'll see if you have any comments or questions. The reading of Luke's writings, which also includes the book of Acts, because it's a two-volume work, is a political apology given to a Roman official named Theophilus. One of his primary intentions was to defend the intention of Luke, Christianity against the charge of sedition, or secure the place of Christian movement within the Roman Empire. Why? Because it's connected to Judaism. 
Rome did tolerate other religions of recognized races. So at least at the beginning, what it seems is happening is Luke is trying to build a case that the early church is an extension of Judaism. Therefore, they should be recognized as a religion as well and not be persecuted. Now, remember, it won't take long before um, Christians will be arrested and many of them martyred as well. So this might be part of the objective of Luke as well. All right. So that's a lot of stuff. Let me uh, stop the uh, screen sharing and let's see if you have any thoughts that you would like to make as we close off. Isn't that fascinating, though, that there's so many similar type of ideas and parallels? That's That's been my point this whole evening, basically. With the 72, if he sent out 72, 72 is um, six twelves. Right. It's a multiple of 12. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any connection. But... There could be. There could be, Shelley. And so in the NIV translation, they chose the 72 option versus 70. Okay. Um, but they did put a footnote here that it, in other manuscripts, that might just been a scribal error that, you know, that the number <laughs> 70 creeped in there. I, I think since the number 12 kind of pops up here in the Gospel of Luke, that is quite likely that 72 as a multiple of 12 might be the truer number but i can't the, the interesting <laughs> thing is it's six which is half a 12 six yeah. mm -hmm. i don't know what the six would represent but. no I, I don't know either i don't know but but that's a good observation for sure that it's it's a multiple there are certain numbers <laughs> that are in scripture that just keep repeating three, seven, 12, 40. Uh, these numbers just keep popping up all the way from old Testament to, to mm -hmm. new Testament. So you have your new lottery numbers. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> just use those tomorrow. Go play. Yeah. <laughs> go, uh, go play three, seven, 12 and 40. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other questions or comments you have tonight all right thanks for bearing with this study um it it is just something that i just found fascinating and i just you know hope that it piques your interest so we'll go in a different direction uh next week in luke so that kind of closes off this particular theory Anybody else? All right. Stay warm and we'll see you soon. Okay. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.